Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is Spielbogel Chapter 16, The Scientific Revolution. Uh, this is one of the shorter chapters, but still a very import important chapter, and I divide it up among three categories. First, astronomy. Uh, the second one would be medicine and modern health. And the third would be just general scientific data, uh, how we collect data, how we analyze data, how we make observations about the world. Um, and so that will be my order that I go through, astronomy, medicine, and science in general. And throughout this time, um, all three of these major categories are mainly uh, established first by Aristotle and mostly the Greeks, a little bit of the Romans as well, but mostly the Greeks and their data collection, um, mostly Plato, Aristotle, and Galen, um, but a lot of their theories are obviously outdated, uh, but they continue to be uh, put through you or be in place and be in use during the medieval ages. And the scientific revolution is really a pushback against that. Um, and in that way, it can be sort of seen as a rejection of the Renaissance. The Renaissance is very focused on uh, Greek and Roman classics. This is a pushback against that and a step forward in discovery and in technology. So like I said, uh, the first category we're going to talk about is astronomy. And the main thinking at this time from the Greeks and very importantly from the church is that the, is that the earth is the center of the universe, that um, the universe and the planets and the sun revolve around the earth. Um, obviously that is very wrong. And the first person who kind of starts to push back against this is uh, Copernicus. He publishes his book, um, about his discoveries. He's a mathematician, not a scientist, and which this is why he kind of sort of dances around this subject, doesn't really push too um, too hard on this, but he essentially says that all planets revolve around the sun and that the moon revolves around the earth. Um, and a lot of, he just uses pure scientific data uh, that he's able to collect uh, to prove that the sun is the center of the universe, or the center of our galaxy. Um, and thus, because he walks kind of carefully, his ideas aren't spread too far. Um, his main worry is that he's going to be condemned and exiled from the church. Uh, so he walks a little closely, uh, but the Protestants end up um, rejecting him and condemning him for his thinking anyway. He's condemned by uh, Luther himself. Uh, but the Catholic Church is pretty slow to react because they are still fighting against the Protestants, and they don't want to agree to the Protestants, or agree with the Protestants. Um, the next person is Bra. He is a, he's not really much of a scientist himself, but he does collect a lot of data, um, and a lot of his observations <coughs> are later used by his assistants, Kepler, um, to uh, prove the theories of Copernicus and really spread the idea that the sun is the center of the, of the solar system. And so Bra, he's more of a, uh, he's more of a, like a rich person who's able to buy all the tools and buy his um, observations so that Kepler can use them. And so, like I said, his assistant Kepler comes in um, and he's able to um, spread the ideas of Bra and connect his mathematical equations and uh, discoveries to a scientific understanding of the of the universe. And he comes up with three laws of planetary motion. First, he says that planets follow an elliptical pattern, not a perfect circular pattern. He says that planets speed up when they're closer to the sun. 
and he says that planets with a larger orbit, and thus uh, planets that are further away from the sun, have a slower velocity. And eventually Kepler's uh, beliefs are able to replace uh, the old beliefs that the sun is not the center of, of the solar system. And then finally, with astronomy, you have Galileo, probably one of the most famous um, scientists from the scientific revolution besides maybe Newton. Um, he ushers in kind of the new age of astronomy with the telescope. He's able to observe uh, mountains on the moon, craters on the moon. He discovers the four, or four moons of Jupiter. He uh, <clears throat> collects data on the phases of Venus, and he finds uh, the sunspots, or, you know, spots on the sun. Um, he is eventually condemned by the church at this point, and because he lives in Rome, he is uh, placed under house arrest, um, and, you know, the church uh, puts on a display of being able to um, attack him for his uh, challenging of religious doctrine, and is eventually just sort of, um, he's forced to recount his work, um, like I said, he lives in Rome, so the very the fear of the Catholic Church is um, very strong in Rome, obviously. That's where they're centered. And so a lot of his discoveries are pushed back against by the Church, and he's put under house arrest, um, and sort of renounces what he does, and then jumps back and forth between that. But Galileo's work um, is obviously very important. Uh, really establishes a lot of the modern understanding that we have of the solar system. And between Galileo and Newton, their work is going to dominate the next 300, 400 years of scientific understanding, all the way up until Einstein's idea of mass and motion and um, how the universe uh, essentially functions. And so Galileo, he comes up with all these, uh, you know, very complicated things that uh, you're going to learn more about them physics. It's not my job to explain science. It's just my job to explain history. Uh, that's because I'm not very good at science, frankly. So <laughs> um, I'm going to keep to history, and I'm going to uh, stray away from uh, describing uh, the scientific uh, the scientific part of the scientific revolution. So following G Galileo, you have Newton. Uh, probably the most famous person uh, from the scientific revolution. He is, uh, in his early life, he is uh, forced into quarantine because of the Black Plague. And, uh, you know, as we all did during quarantine, I'm I'm sure of, we, uh, you know, discovered calculus, uh, researched light waves, we, and we begun our work on, uh, you know, understanding gravity and uh, eventually discovering the idea of gravity. And so, in his book, he publishes uh, his idea of three laws of motion, that an object at rest or in motion will continue unless, uh, you know, decreased by force, that acceleration is proportional to the actor, and that every action, for every action, there is an equal opposite. So all three of these, um, they're sort of tied in with physics, and not really astronomy, but what Newton, what Newton and what Newton is able to do here is he's able to tie his idea of gravitational poles, of physics, and of, uh, you know, gravity, He's able to 
connect that to why the universe is the way it is and why, you know, the sun is the center of the universe, why everything orbits the sun, and how all of that plays out. And so Newton, he is in England, and uh, this promotes a lot of pride in England uh, for their scientific um for the scientific revolution, and he's a, a lot of his ideas uh, dominate. Like I said before, they dominate uh, the landscape until Einstein uh, comes about in the 20th century, and so um, that kind of ends our discussion of astronomy. Now we're going to jump into medicine. So, like I said at the beginning, although you might not remember it, uh, medicine is mainly made up of Galen's work. Uh, and the Greek understanding of how that works. So Galen, he relies a lot on animal dissection, which is obviously not perfect when you're talking about uh, the human body, because, uh, and this is, this might be a little advanced for some of you, but animal bodies and human bodies are different. Um, And so that makes it very difficult uh, to create a a, a universal uh, way of medicine. Uh, when you're just dissecting animal bodies and applying that to human bodies. He also believes that there are two bloodlines, one for muscles and one for the arteries. He proposes the idea that blood is a, or that disease is an imbalance of the blood, and this leads to bloodletting, but also some herbal remedies that do end up working sort of on accident. And so um, the scientific revolution challenges these ideas, and eventually... Uh, we've got uh, sort of the rejection of Aristotle and Galen's beliefs, um, and we ha- uh, we've got some sort of major ideas. So we've got the uh, micro microorganism, macroorganism that the um, the human body is just sort of sca- it can be scaled up or scaled down uh, depending on the system, and that how the human body functions is how the planets function, how uh, you know, every species uh, every species works, how the earth and the rotation of the seasons works. Essentially that um, the human body is just uh, sort of a scaled up or scaled down version of a common trend throughout the entire universe. Um, there's also a rejection uh, that disease is a chemical imbalance, and um, we also have a, a greater push for um, finding cures to diseases, and also that proper dosage is um, equally important to finding the right cure. In addition to this, we have um, a greater description, uh, mainly with uh, William Harvey. He's able to uh, dissect people. (coughs) Uh, He's able to dissect uh, people, most importantly, alive people. He dissects alive criminals, which is... uh, Certainly questionable morality, to put it at the least, but um, he he is able to pull. He is able to push for a greater understanding of medicine and a greater understanding of the human body. Uh, he's able to prove that the human body pumps blood, not the liver, and he's also able to prove that um, the he's able to prove that there is one system of blood, not two systems of blood. Um, and that the heart is pumping that blood. In addition to this, all three of the big um, medical medical scientists, I guess, uh, they use uh, Renaissance illustrations, the uh, 
complexity and the more uh, vivid uh, artistic decisions of the Renaissance are able to be seen in the journals and in the textbooks at the time. Also being able to print, um, uh, mass print and spread textbooks throughout uh, universities and colleges also helps spread the ideas and helps, um, you know, sp spread the idea of a connected science community and how uh, we can work together um, to forward science, but also how, um, you know, science can build on each other and how we can all work together towards finding the next uh, big discovery. And then a small uh, sort of subsection of medicine, you have chemistry. This is mostly Boyle's, uh, Robert Boyle. He begins uh, taking a look at chemical reactions. Um, he begins taking a look mostly at like how gases react to pressure, how pressure is exerted on gases um, will begin uh, you know, reacting to each other. And so essentially he starts a chemical revolution, but this is sort of a subsection mostly because uh, chemistry is uh, paved mostly through women. And because women are uh, not seen as, you know, real scientists, a lot of their work is questioned or not accepted by the scientific community at large. Uh, chemistry doesn't see the same changes that something like astronomy or medicine would because, uh, like I said, women are mostly dominating this field and their ideas and their practices are not as well spread. Um, and then finally we have the just general scientific data collection in general with Descartes. And these two uh, sort of complement each other but also sort of uh, go against each other. Uh, Descartes, he talks to a lot of people during the Thirty Years' War. He's a soldier during the Thirty Years' War. And so um, he really tries to find something common that all humans can agree upon, that we can trust. And he tries to find this idea of abject truth. What is something that all humans can agree upon? What is something that we can establish human knowledge on? And uh, what we would consider, like, very, um, you know, obvious things, something like being able to see something, uh, Descartes rejects. He says that uh, we can't trust our five senses because sometimes they lie to us. We can't trust our brain even uh, because, um, you know, we're able to dream, we're able to create these false realities, and we don't, we can't truly know when we're, um, you know, conscious and unconscious. And so Descartes, or Descartes, uh, eventually stumbles upon maybe one of the most famous quotes from this time, I think, therefore, I am, saying that because we're able to think, because we're able to observe the universe, um, we are, we are real. Um, and Descartes' general ideas are able to uh, start the idea of modern philosophy, that we need to question everything, that what we see might not always be true, and trying to find this uh, objective reality is sort of the uh, quest of Descartes. Uh, Francis Bacon, on the other hand, is a little less philosophical about it all. He's a lot more realistic. Sir Francis's Bacon, or, oh boy, Sir Francis's Bacon. Um, 
let me try that again. Sir Francis Bacon's greatest uh, contribution is the scientific method. Uh, just being able to organize experiments and a more system or more systemic um, observations and more of a universal way of being able to test theories, test ideas, um, and arrive at some sort of conclusion. Essentially, Francis Bacon says that if we're if we're able to uh, do everything we can to try and disprove our theories, and if those theories are still true, they're they are more likely to be true. Essentially, saying that. Uh, we can't just accept the data how we want it to be. We can't just will the data um, how we want it to be. We have to follow the data and see where it goes. Um, Francis Bacon is actually, he makes zero uh, scientific contributions, um, but his main one is that he's able, or his only uh, real contribution is that he's able to, um, you know, create a more rigid and a more, a systematic way of collecting data and analyzing that data. And so that is mostly uh, what I wanted to talk about with the scientific revolution. However, there are some important, um, more general, more societal uh, conversations. So first of all, uh, there are the scientific industries. The two biggest ones are the English Royal Society in London and Oxford and the French Royal Academy of Paris. These two societies are not always working together, but they are working uh, to sort of unite their uh, countries towards uh, pushing for more scientific change. And the absolute monarchs of the time in England and France invest heavily in scientific research and sci scientific data collection. Uh, the reason for this is that and this is mainly in France. England does not invest directly into their sciences, uh, but France, the government of France, does support their science. And so the uh, the French society is able to invest more in military, and they're able to apply their sciences more to trade and military. Uh, and this is because the scientific revolution, while today might be just seen as science, understanding the world, um, at that time, uh, the absolute uh, absolute leaders and absolute rulers wanted to use the scientific revolution to uh, have a revolution also in military and fight more for a more complex and more scientific and data-driven way of fighting wars and fighting wars based on trade. Um, and so, just in general, the scientific societies are bolstered uh, mostly through governments in France, and a lot of the scientific uh, discoveries come from that. And then the second societal change I wanted to talk about was science and religion. Um, obviously, uh, the Catholic Church, as we've talked about before, is pretty uh, looming throughout European history, and uh, between science and religion, <coughs> um, there's a breakdown between that. So the Catholic Church rejects a lot of uh, the scientific discoveries of the scientific revolution. And this leads to both the more secular society, because a lot of the 
Scientific thinking of the time is accepted by society at large, but rejected by the church. And it also leads to a divide between science and religion. And that trend is going to continue even today with, you know, the rejection of evolution, the rejection in some small sense, a rejection of the uh, heliocentric view of the universe um, and how that rejects uh, or how that goes against the teachings of the Bible. So leading off of this, we have Spinoza, who grows up in the Protestant Netherlands. He rejects Judaism early in his life, um, and he believes that God is everything. And so he ties this idea that uh, because God is everything, because God, uh, you know, influences gravity, influences physics, influences mechanics, influences chemistry, that um, science and religion can go together. Um, and that happens because God... Like he says, God is everything, and thus God is science. Um, and so he, Spinoza tries to connect uh, religion and science together, and he ultimately fails. Uh, Pascal, sort of along the same sense, he, saw, he seeks to keep science and religion united. Uh, he publishes this idea trying to convert rationalists to Christianity, saying that you know religion is reason that religion creates a reason and a way of reading the universe and a way to say that, um, you know, a way to follow the way of the universe and a way to uh, see how the universe functions. And uh, he sort of comes up with this uh, in addition to this, Pascal also uh, brings about Pascal's wager, wager, uh, which is pretty common even today. Um, and he says that uh, God is a reasonable bet, that if God is real, you win everything, you win, you know, an eternity in heaven, and that if he's not real, you lose nothing. Um, and so Pascal's wager um, is just sort of attempting to uh, appeal to that reason, saying that, hey, it's a safe bet if if he's real, you win everything. If he's, you know, fake, um, you lose absolutely nothing. There's no burden to you at all. Um, so Pascal's wager kind of appeals to that, uh, that reason, that data collection of the scientific revolution, but uh, Pascal ultimately fails to unite uh, religion and science together. And, um, you know, the two communities remain deeply divided even today. And so... Um, that is all I believe I wanted to say. I hope you learned something new, and I hope uh, you'll come back for the next episode. Thank you.